0: triumphantly in the city of Jerusalem, and was hailed as Israel's great messianic king by many. Later, we read about how Jesus went into the temple, and like a priest of old days, he inspected that house for uncleanness. And by the way, if infection were to persist in a house, Leviticus chapter 14 Verse 44, the rule was, quote, It is unclean, and he shall break down the house, even its stones. Then he stood up on the Mount of Olives like a prophet, and he warned of the coming destruction upon that temple and that city. He was in the mold of Jeremiah, who warned in his prophecy, that God would bring great desolation upon the land of Israel because of her abominations. Now, Jeremiah was viewed because of that prophecy as an enemy of God's people, as a traitor, and he was persecuted because of it. And in the same way, they would accuse our Lord at his trial, saying, he spoke against our temple. The reality, of course, is that he did predict the destruction of the temple and, in fact, the raising of the temple again in three days, which seemed ludicrous to them, but seems wonderful to us with eyes of faith who realize that Jesus Christ is the true temple, right? The temple is not centralized in a faraway land for us. It is wherever two or three are gathered together in Jesus, in spirit, and in truth, because he is the very epicenter of the presence of God. The destruction of that temple, that earthly temple, and that city, was on the one hand a part, a a preordained part of God's plan of salvation, his grand plan for history. But on the other hand, it was part of his judgment on Israel's ongoing unbelief. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 35, I believe we're seeing Jesus predicting the destruction of that city, the prediction of that judgment the course of the conversation runs like this in four easy steps. The disciples say, look at the temple. Jesus says, it will be destroyed. They say, when? He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, this final paragraph of that section really two paragraphs, but the final paragraph before the closing summary paragraph focuses on this topic, the coming of the Son of Man. And that's the topic for the sermon this morning, the coming of the Son of Man, beginning with our text in verse number 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the, to the other. And from, a, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that, the summer, that summer is near. So also when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will. Will not pass away. Now, of course, as I've been acknowledging, there is disagreement about this text. That's probably an understatement. And I think the main disagreement with regard to this passage that we're looking at has to do with the nature of this coming that he's talking about here, right? You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What is that? Well, there are two broad answers. One is an answer given by unbelieving people, and it's this: that Jesus was predicting his glorious second coming, and that he thought it would happen very soon, and that he was wrong. All right. On the other hand, there are believing people, but there is disagreement about how they read this text. On the one hand, there are those who believe that he is predicting his future second coming, but that he was not saying that it would happen soon and that it will happen someday, just like he said. There are others who say that what he was talking about was not his second coming or his appearance in glory at the end of time. That happens in verses 36 and following. Rather, he was talking about his enthronement, and that he said that what he was talking about would happen soon, and in fact, did happen and unfold exactly as he said. Now, we should, all of us in this room, fit into one of those two second categories, right? We are looking at this as believing people. Now, I happen to be a believer who thinks that the second explanation fits this text on balance best but i will not berate you or belittle you if you disagree now the events whatever they refer to these events are described in verse 29 as following immediately after the what the tribulation The tribulation of those days. Immediately after the tribulation of those days is this coming. Now, I'm going to give you some options this morning. So if you don't like um, the way I've been interpreting this passage, you can can at least hear what the other options are. Um, Especially with regard to these words, immediately after the tribulation of those days is the coming of the Son of Man. The first basic position, therefore, the first basic position is that the tribulation of those days refers to the Jewish-Roman War, which took place between 66 and 73 AD. This is the position that I believe is best in keeping with the text. This is what is sometimes called the preterist position, or maybe what's better called a kind of a classic or orthodox preterist position, as opposed to, hyper-preterist kind of people who believe that everything in the Bible is all past for us. But this is a a, um, well-established position among God's people. Secondly, there is a position that the tribulation of those days is a broader kind of terminology that refers to the whole period between Christ's first and second coming. That that period, um, in the end will be characterized more or less by various trials and tribulations for God's people. After all, the Bible says that we all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is sometimes called the idealist position. Ideal in, this, in the sense that, that's probably not the right way to say it, but, uh, but that, that there's no specific uh, point in time that it's referring to. The third basic position is that the tribulation of those days refers to a short, intense period of persecution that will happen in the future just before Christ returns again. This position is sometimes called the futurist position. That is a kind of futurist position That is, it's classically been expressed throughout church history. You might call it the traditional futurist understanding, a great period of tribulation before Christ returns. And then there is finally um, those who believe that the tribulation of those days refers to a period of judgment upon national Israel that is still yet in the future. This is the position that is known as dispensationalism which is a kind of more recent flavor of futurism. And of course, the challenge with that, I think particularly, is that this coming of Christ is said to be immediately after the tribulation of those days. Um, whereas this position sees, um, actually kind of forces a divide Um, of the coming of Christ into two parts. One part that happens um, whereby believers are taken up out of the world in a rapture, and then a seven-year span, a kind of a gap, and then after which is the rest of the coming of Christ, the full glorious coming of Christ. Now, those are the four basic positions. And last week, I argued for an understanding of the tribulation of those days that sees it as being fulfilled primarily in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, if that's the case and just, you know, just grant me that for a moment, but if that is what is actually being talked about here, then the question is how is it that immediately after that tribulation, you have the, these events surrounding the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, because we're still waiting for that, aren't we? Or has it already happened? That's the nub of the question. If it has already happened, then it must be, whatever the coming of the Son of Man is, it must be something distinct from his second coming that we're still waiting for, his coming in glory, the manifestation of of his greatness and, and his glory and the final judgment and the resurrection of humanity and the end of the world. So it must be something distinct from that. And I think in answer to that question, there are two very important uh, helps, two sets of helps. The first is that not just in one passage in Matthew, but in multiple occasions, Jesus has pointed again and again to a soon time frame for this coming. Let me show you and remind you of these passages. The first is in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 23 where Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples to go and evangelize the Jewish cities, and he says to them, listen to the timing here, he says, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So it seems as if he expects this to be fairly soon. Then you have Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, There are some standing here, some of you, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, then you have a third passage, which is actually the text that we're looking at here, uh, chapter 24. And verse 30, he has said that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then he summarizes that time frame in verse 34 when he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Again, a repeated sense that whatever this is, Jesus seems to think it's going to happen pretty soon. And the final one is Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, when Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, and he looks at the high priest and he says to him, from now on, you, Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on. So, in my understanding, if, if these passages are taken at face value, it seems as if this coming, whatever it is, is to take place soon after Jesus' earthly ministry. Now that's one set of helps. The other set of helps, or the other help, are is the Old Testament background from which these, this terminology is drawn. I think a lot of our... Confusion. I think, anyway, at least it was for me. A lot of my confusion was that I re- I was I grew up very familiar with the New Testament, and rightly so, but the Old Testament was kind of a, a closed book to me. I didn't I didn't think about it as as deeply and study it as much, and and I, I didn't have even a kind of proper framework for really reading it in a way that that made it as valuable to me. Um, but I think the Old Testament background really helps to shed light here. So what is the key phrase then that's under dispute? It is the idea of the Son of Man coming, the Son of Man coming in power and glory um, in the clouds and so forth. Um, and, and really to just kind of bring it all down to the, to the kernel of it, there is, a, there is an important subject and there's an important verb, the Son of Man and this verb of coming, both are important. Both are used in every single one of the time references in the Gospel of Matthew used together. So first of all, the, the title, Son of Man, that should by now conjure up for us certain um, Old Testament texts and one Old Testament text in particular that really stands out and uses this imagery in, in a really powerful vision, and that is Daniel chapter 7. If you have the habit, which I think is a great habit of sort of keep taking notes or maybe even jotting little things in this margin of your Bible, um, then jot Daniel 7 right beside this so that you can compare those. In Daniel 7, we won't read it because we have at least once or twice before in this series, but in Daniel chapter 7, you remember the context that there is, it's as if Daniel is transported to The throne room of God, and there's this convening of a royal court. Right, the throne is set up, and there's this huge entourage gathered for a what is apparently a a coronation, really. And and then there is someone um, like a man. He's called a son of man, or one like a son of man, and yet he rides on clouds, like a, on a cloudy chariot like God himself. So he's like a man and like God, and he comes into this throne room, and he comes before the Ancient of Days upon his throne to, to God himself, and he is presented to God and given... Eternal authority over all men on earth. And Jesus Christ grabs hold of that language, Son of Man language, and he said, he uses that for himself more than I think almost any other kind of terminology to refer to himself. He's saying, you know what Daniel said back in Daniel 7? That's me. That vision that he had, that was about me. Okay? I am the Son of Man. He was that. Great son of man who because of his perfect obedience in his human um, uh, his human obedience in his time of humiliation, he was exalted to be head over all things. Now, that's the important subject. The important verb is the word come or coming. The same one used in every one of these time texts and used, of course, here in Matthew chapter 24. You will see the son of man coming. By now... You are familiar with another word that's often translated coming, which is the word parousia, which is one of the most common terms for the second coming of Jesus in glory, the final um, uh, manifestation of Christ, right? That is actually not the word used here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, when he says, You will see the Son of Man coming. In fact, it's not the word used here or in any of the other time texts that seem to say that Christ is coming back soon. But it is the word that's found in the Greek text of Daniel or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, again, here's the text in Daniel, and this is the word that's used. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So, here's the important thing that I think really just turns on the light for me that this coming is not a coming to earth of the Christ, this is a coming to be presented to God in the throne room of heaven. This is a royal presentation, if you will. This is not just merely going from one place to another. This is a, a being presented at court before the entire royal entourage. He will come and to the throne and to receive his kingdom. In other words, the Son of Man's coming here, I think, is exaltation language, it's enthronement language, it's coronation language, it's the language of glorification. And it, the reference here is to that period of Christ's exaltation, as distinct from his humiliation, right? We divide Christ's ministry in two broad categories, his humiliation or his descent and his exaltation. His, this is a reference, his coming before God, his coming in uh, glory here in power. This is a reference to his um, enjoying of his rightful glory as the obedient son of man and his being given the rule over all of the nations as the great end time king. That, I think, is really significant. If you grasp that in Daniel, then it begins to help really, at least for me, just shed light on, on these other texts and why Jesus could say this is going to happen soon. So here's the way I presented it to you in kind of a graph graphic form. Um, there are two basic phases of Christ's kingdom or his coming. That if, if this is something that's happening soon, it is, and yet it's also happening in two phases. There's an, a form that's already um manifest, and there's a form in which it's it's not yet made uh, visible. There, there's an invisible aspect to his reign, right? When he ascends up into heaven, we believe that what? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's enthroned at his ascension, which is a huge part of the whole um, story of the uh, work of Christ that I think we overlook. I just heard um, somebody else mention that the other day. We, we, we forget how significant his ascension is. That was a big deal. Um, and and he, he, he goes up and he, he, he begins to ride up into heaven in the clouds, so to speak. And um, and, and to, to be presented, as the scripture predicted, to the Father to receive his kingdom in obedience for all of his perfect work. Now, this is, uh, this is invisible to us. We, he is obscured from their view, right, as he begins to make his way into the throne room of heaven. So his kingdom presently is invisible, but one day it will be visible when he returns to earth. Um, there are several terms that help us to describe that. The term "coming" that He will come again. This is usually the, the word "parousia" um, that means His presence, or the term "appearing," which is the term for, that we where we get our English word um, "epiphany." Uh, it's a it's a sudden manifestation. It's like here He is, but you can't see Him, and then suddenly He'll be manifest. Or another word is the word revelation, from where we get our word apocalypse, which just means an unveiling, a lifting of the veil, a pulling back of the curtain. It's like, here's Jesus on his throne, and it's already true. But we don't yet see it visibly, this rule of Christ. just Even though it is just as true as it'll ever be, but one day God will pull back the curtain and everybody will say, Whoa, yes. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and confess and, and acknowledge what is at that time going to be unmistakable. Right now, people can deny that Jesus Christ is Lord, but one day it will not be able to be denied. It'll be as obvious as the lightning flashing across the sky. I mean, it's it's going to be absolutely undeniable. At first, Christ is taken up into heaven, enthroned, obscured from our sight. His kingdom is established, but as Luke says in one point, not in ways that are able to be observed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think also on here, he says, Paul says that he must reign until. So the implication is his reign has begun Uh, and it will continue until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The very last enemy to be put finally under the absolute and visible control of the Lord Jesus Christ is death itself. One day, death itself will will completely cease to be. And then, when everything, even death, is visibly subjected to Jesus Christ, then comes the end and he delivers the kingdom to the Father and God is all in all. Now, all of that, that part of it, that second half is not yet. So we're living in this first half, the invisible reign, right? And so the next slide kind of focuses in on that a little bit more. And this is the period in which Christ is enthroned in heaven, but he's not yet returned again, made manifest again. The clouds of heaven are not yet pulled back so that we see him in all of his glory ruling and reigning over us. And the Bible says about this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. Look, look, listen to this. All of the Bible just really fits this way together. It says that at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right? We can't see it. It's not visible. His kingdom is coming in ways that cannot be observed. But, verse 9, he says, but yet we do see. (laughs) Wait, we don't see, but we do see? We don't see it visibly, right? You don't say, oh, his kingdom is over here. Come out, come into the secret room or go out into the wilderness. His kingdom is out there. No, it's not like that. You don't have to go find him. His kingdom is invisible. It's among us. But, but at the same time, we see it. We see, he says, him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see him crowned with glory and honor. Do you see him? Do you see him? You say, "How do we see him? How will they see him?" Jesus said to people in His own day, "You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory." What do you mean? If it's a, if his if his if the first stage of His coming is invisible, how can it be seen? And this text answers that question, I think, in part. Verse number thirty. Take a look at the text in front of you again. Verse number 30, he says, Then will appear in heaven the what? I'm in verse 30. Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. I guess I just want to make sure you're still alive. I don't know. (laughs) Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now, I, I think the more literal wording of this is, is probably better. It's the one I put up on, I, did I put it on this screen or the other one? Uh, yeah, on this screen. So I think the King James has it and the NIV also translate it this way, um, just in a more, you know, linear fashion to the way it's written in Greek. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And I think that that all goes together. It's not that the sign is up in heaven somewhere. It's 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 here visible for us to see. It's the son of man who's enthroned in heaven. And he, and he gives us a sign so that we can know that he is in fact on his throne. They they he's obscured from their view. They don't see him. They don't know. They take it by faith in what he said, but he said I'll give you a sign that will demonstrate that I am ruling over this world. Even though I'm not with you, I will give you a sign. And when that happens, verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will what? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They will see his invisible enthronement in the heavenly places by seeing the sign of his coming and and believing it by faith. Saying this is what Jesus told us would happen. Now we know, as if we didn't know, but now we are confirmed in this belief that he is in fact ruling and reigning over the world. That the, that that they're killing him didn't stop his plan. He he preached that the kingdom was coming, that the kingdom was here, that he was the king. And and he is on his throne. And this is the sign. This is the sign he told us about. That's what's going on here. And that sign that he gave to them was this shift from Israel to the nations culminating in the destruction of the temple and in all of the old covenant types and shadows. That's the sign. Now, this cataclysmic judgment on unbelieving Israel is spoken about by Jesus in cataclysmic language. And that's what you see in the middle of verse 29. Take a look at that. He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. say, what is that? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. History is replete, replete with Prophecy experts and people very interested in this sort of thing who look for and believe they have found signs in the heavens that Jesus' coming is just around the corner. And this didn't just happen in 1970 and 1982 and 1991. This has happened all through church history. People have failed to really grapple, I think, well enough with what Jesus said. And so they have taken note um, of eclipses of the sun or moon or whatever, comets, four blood moons, whatever it is. They've taken note of these things and for centuries have made predictions about the coming of Jesus, usually couched in some kind of terminology like, now we don't know the day or the hour, but we can know the year or the month or maybe even the week. I actually, read somebody who said exactly that. Maybe I'll bring that a quote sometime. Um, and so they they said, because, look, he said there would be these signs in the heavens, and we're seeing, look, this is this only happens every 172 years in history. Did you know that? This, you know, cosmic whatever it is, or you know, some strange, you know, comet coming across the sky. This must be a sign that Jesus is about to come, right? It's just people have often get caught, have gotten caught up in such predictions in a way that honestly Christianity has lost a lot of its credibility through the years in the public imagination because of such failed predictions. Somebody says, well... Are we supposed to take these things literally, like the sun will go dark and the stars will fall down? And I think um, taking it literally, literalistically here, fails to reckon with the type of literature that it is. Are we to take the Bible literally? Yeah, of course, most definitely. Definitely. But if you miss the poetry, then you miss what the Bible is literally saying. For example, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Your eyes are doves. Literally? Well, we all, you know, maybe we don't all, right? I think we all will say, yeah, that's, that's, that's figurative. Right? And um, so Jesus says, I am the door. You say, well, we all know that's figurative. He's not literally a piece of wood that's flattened about that. Right? We know that's figurative. Metaphorical. He says, my body is the bread. And we say, we all know that's figurative. Well, wait now, wait a second. <laughs> we, 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 in church history, we haven't all known that one. Right? Somewhere along the line... We all recognize that there's a there's metaphor going on at, at some levels in scripture, and and we have to be discerning in trying to figure that out. Let's just you know just make it plain that way. Nobody says we're the people who do take everything literally, and nobody you know nobody you know should 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 want that. So um, after all, in Revelation, there's a dragon who sweeps a third of the stars down to the earth. Is that literally a dragon? Even most Most interpreters would say, no, not literally a, a dragon on the planet and and are a third of the stars brought to the physical earth I mean one star alone is bigger than the whole earth it, it, it's I think you know this is i acknowledge that there is um, there is a place in the scripture to say something very true and and literally true through the use of poetic language so what is going on here and I think that we're not left without help. We're not left to our own devices to say, well, I think it's literal, I don't, and well, let's just take a vote. You know, We are given help in the Word of God itself, and this imagery is not out of nowhere. It, it is drawn from a deep saturation in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament prophets. So I want to give you just a little sampling of the way that Jesus' terminology here was used by the prophets themselves, in whom, in, in, in which Jesus stands. And I really lost my sentence now. Jesus stands in the long tradition of the prophets, is what I'm trying to say, right? And so he's using terminology that way. So here's, here's the way they use it. Let me th- put some on the screen. Isaiah 13. In Isaiah 13, Isaiah is describing God's judgment on Babylon, of course, Babylon was God's judgment on Israel, but then God turned around and said, now I'm going to judge Babylon too. That happened in history in 539 BC. Isaiah, predicting that, uses the terminology of cosmic cataclysm. You know he's talking about Babylon. Verse 1, he says, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And then down in verse 17, he says, behold, I am stirring up the Medes, Against them, the Medes and the Persians, right? They're going to be God's judgment on Babylon. But in verse 19, here's the way he describes it. He says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. In verse 10, he says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark in its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And then in verse 13, he says, therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. What is God saying? When I bring judgment on Babylon, the whole earth is going to shake and the star, the the lights of the heavens are going to go dark and it's just going to be cosmic chaos, right? That's the language. That's the poetry that's being used. In Isaiah chapter 34, he writes about not the judgment on Babylon, but the judgment on Edom. And verse 2, he says, Son of man, raise, excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 13, wait a minute. This should be Isaiah 34, Uh, and you're right, you're in the right place. Okay, he says about Edom, excuse me, All of the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies will be rolled up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall as leaves fall off the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, and behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. God says, I'm going to bring judgment on Edom, and I'm going to roll up the whole sky right Ezekiel 32 here's an example God speaking of his judgment on Egypt in verse 2 he says son of man raise a lamentation over pharaoh king of egypt and say to him and among the things he says is verse 7 when i blot you out egypt i will cover the heavens and make their stars dark and I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. And all of the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you, and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. All right? I'm going to put out all the lights of heaven. And then Amos chapter 8 this is God's judgment on Israel. He uses a similar language. Verse 2 The Lord said to me, The end has come. The end of what? The end of the world. Well, the end of the world for Israel, the end has come upon my people Israel. It will never pass uh, again, pass, uh, pass by them. Verse 9, he says, on that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth at broad daylight. And then he says, he uses a similar language with Judah. And this one is particularly interesting Because you will recognize this quotation. Even if you don't remember it from Joel, you'll recognize it. Listen to this from Joel, God's prophecy against the people of Judah in chapter 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining Down in verse 28, he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, why do you recognize that? Because it's referenced in where? Anybody know? In Acts 2. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples are given the gift to speak in tongues, which is for the people of Israel a sign of judgment, actually. Isaiah 28, Isaiah said that that would be the case, that God would speak to them with other tongues, but they still won't listen. So here they are speaking to Israel in many different tongues, and the people think that they're drunk. And Peter quotes this entire passage including the reference with the sun and the moon and the stars and the blood and the smoke and all of that and he says what you're seeing right now is what joel was talking about it's the end of the world that is the end of the jewish world and i think this kind of language so uh, you see it right you see this is the way that this language is used again and again and again and again and again all throughout this history um and this kind of language is one element of a broader poetic palette that paints God's judgment as a kind of de-creation, a kind of reverse creation that undoes everything that God did on the first, uh, at the beginning of creation, when God made the world. Right? In fact, uh, uh, I have time for this, but. Uh, um, this is when you, you, know, you have to call an audible. You have to try to figure out how much can, I, can you endure. <clears throat> um, all right, well, I'll just say we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that maybe at some point. But, but uh, he's speaking of the, the destruction of the universe in, the, in sort of reverse terminology of what he spoke when God made the universe. In other words, he's saying to, to the people that he's speaking to, I will unmake your world. I will decreate it. So, this language of cosmic catastrophe is the common language of the prophets for the judgments on the nations. So, so bear in mind then that neither at the judgment of Babylon in the sixth century BC, or at the judgment of Egypt in the fourth century BC, or at the judgment of Edom in the second century, or at the judgment of Israel in the first century AD, did the sun and the stars literally fall from heaven? This kind of language, rather, is imagery that is poetic to talk about the end of their world, when God will put their lights out, so to speak. We even use this kind of terminology to say, we say today, we say that some event or another was earth-shattering. The earth didn't literally fall to pieces. It wasn't li- literally the end of the world. We we sometimes say that too, don't we? We like, oh, it was the end of the world. This is what the Lord is doing. This this kind of language, though, it's less familiar to us. For the Old Testament prophets, they were right at home with this. It was their stock and trade. And Jesus takes up that prophetic mantle in pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, the shaking of the heavens that's prophes- prophesied in in Hebrews chapter 12 and identified there as the passing away of the old covenant and the establishment of the new. I think there's probably little question that all of these judgments are sort of previews of that one great final cataclysmic judgment at Jesus' second coming, the great day of the Lord. In other words, Jesus even though he is here specifically talking about the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem, it is probably using language that does foreshadow the end of the world. But here are the references to the physical end of that nation. Now, there's one more element and only one that we have to look at in this text, and that is uh, one more element in this sign that Jesus is giving that he is, in fact, where he says he will be, that is enthroned in heaven. The last element of the sign is in verse 30 and 31. He says there, you're following the text, that when the sign appears, then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Verse 31, 31, he will send out his angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, the mourning of the tribes, the weeping of those tribes, that comes from that language comes from Zechariah chapter twelve. and in that text it is a prophecy of uh, of the the tribes of Israel mourning, or a reference to the tribes of Israel mourning over, quote, "the one whom they have pierced," and and God brings them to repentance and salvation. And then, of course, in many places. In the Old Testament, God talks about the regathering of Israel, the regathering of his elect that's referenced here in verse 31. That was a common Old Testament theme. So sometimes people are saying, well, you know, what is this? Is this Israel? Is it? Is Are these the tribes of the land that is the land of Israel? Are these the tribes of the earth? Because it can be translated either way. Is it talking about the Gentiles? And the answer is it's talking about the elect, which is Who? Well, who are the chosen people? Israel was the chosen people, right well in a in a sense, in a typological picture kind of sense, but really the chosen one it, you narrow it all down, it comes down to one and one only, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ and then through Christ, it is expanded to all who put their faith and trust in who are united to him by faith, whatever nation they are they are the elect of God. And so this is a reference, I believe, to the gathering in of God's people from all of the tribes and nations of the earth. In fact, um, back in chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus had said, I tell you, people are going to come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while the sons of the kingdom, quote-unquote, those who thought they were, will be thrown into outer darkness. So, that also is a part of this. So, let me just summarize this for you and then make application, all right? This is a really faith strengthening thing for us, and I think even more so for Jesus' earliest disciples who had just seen their Lord and Savior crucified. All of his predictions seemed to fall. To most people, most people, once Jesus was crucified, most people who might have thought maybe he was the Messiah, pretty much they dismissed him after that. Oh, we thought he was the Messiah, but of course, he was just one more in a many long line. And the disciples said, no, he's he is ruling over the world. And they said, ruling over the world? We don't see that. And they said, just wait. He gave us a sign. He is done with this people for our unbelief. He's going to bring judgment upon us. And the things that he predicted are going to happen. And people watched and they began to see. What were those signs? What were the elements of that sign that he predicted? I think they were these. Here are several. Number one, the Israelite cities will hear and reject the gospel. I think you might have to skip ahead just a little bit if you have it. But if not, that's fine. Um, Back in chapter 10, verse 24, uh, 23, excuse me, he said, you will not have gone throughout all of the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So they're going to hear, they're going to reject. This is, this is one of the things that's going to show this time frame. Another is that the Holy Spirit will come upon all flesh. Um, John 7, Jesus said the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus hadn't been glorified. So one of the signs that Jesus is glorified is the Holy Spirit comes and comes upon all flesh. In fact, Acts 2, Peter quotes Joel, tying Messiah's coming to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the miraculous manifestation of the gift of tongues, which is a sign. Paul literally uses that term. It's part of the sign against Israel's unbelief. So it is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues there at Pentecost. Then thirdly, the gospel turning to all of the Gentiles, to the nations of the earth. We've seen that twice now here in Matthew chapter 24, that Jesus said that's what's going to happen. And then ultimately, in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and especially the temple, as Jesus has predicted through this entire section. In other words, Jesus said, when you see all of these things begin to happen... One after one, the dominoes begin to fall. All of these puzzle pieces begin to come place to place. Then this is my sign to you that everything I've said to you is true. You can look up to the heavens and know that I'm on the throne. And that's, I think, you know, for us now, all right. So it, it, it does have in some senses the same kind of effect because we're still in this period, this, this expression of his kingdom that is for human eyes, invisible. Look, we, we, we talk, we sing about Jesus ruling and reigning, and the whole world says, oh, yeah, really? I don't see him, right? And one of the things that his disciples were able to do was say, look, everything that he said that would be a sign is coming to pass. And and it should have been, and I think it was, an, a, an encouragement a boost to their faith, and it should be for us. You know, we live in this broken, sinful world, you know? I mean, you look around right now, and I think, if I know, you as Christians, if you read, you read the newspaper and you watch the news and, and you think, is Christ really on his throne? I mean, it, it, he sure is not making it as visible as I want to see him make it. it. And sometimes it seems like things are getting worse before they get better. And, and we look around and we see that and, and what do we say? We say with the writer of Hebrews, uh, at, at present, we do not yet see all things under his feet. But you know, we also say, we see, we see with eyes of faith. Confirmed through all of the signs that he gave, we see him enthroned, seated at the right hand of God. We see him and we believe it. Our faith is strengthened. That's what this was all meant to do for them. And I hope it means it does that for you. I hope you don't walk out of here just saying, Oh, I learned a new way to interpret Matthew 24. But that you walk out saying, No, everything that Jesus said came to pass. He is ruling and reigning right now. All all we're waiting for is for his rule and reign to become apparent, to become indisputable, to become manifest. One of those terms, apocalypsis, that's used to describe his second coming is the term for unveiling. It's like Clark Kent becoming Superman, right? He's always Superman. He's there with his super, you know, what does he have, a sense of hearing? You know, and he hears the eavesdropping in the next room. I don't know what it is, but, but but then but you don't know it because he's Clark Kent. And then one day he goes... Whoosh, He's really been there all along. Superman. It's like, you know, foolish analogy, right? But in a sense, it's like that. Christ is ruling. He's reigning. There is no doubt about that. The people who think that they're fighting against Jesus and they're proving that he doesn't exist and, and all of that, that you believe is all a hoax. One day, all of those arguments will be stopped. They won't, they won't be able to say anything because he's on the throne. He's already ruling. He's ruling over them. He's allowing these things in his own will for his own purposes to bring about his desired ends for this world and for you individually. But make no mistake, the Lord is on his throne. He signified it. He sealed it. And I hope it encourages your faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word. And... Please give us eyes of faith to see our Lord Jesus and to live with confidence in the reign of Christ over all the peoples of the earth. Help us to evangelize because we know that Christ is on his throne and his kingdom is being enlarged and, the, and you're giving a people to him. Help us to live out our lives and to do our jobs because we, we know that, that our labor is not in vain, that he's ruling and reigning over all things. Lord, help us to just trust no matter what. Give us grace in that, Lord. Forgive us for our anxieties and give us a sense of confidence in his good and righteous rule, we pray in his name. Amen.